From the boardroom to the metaverse, this is the Meta Business Podcast. I, Paul Dewalibi, the master of the metaverse, will lead you through the biggest business stories in the metaverse. Join us as we break down the news and trends from a C-suite lens, bringing you insights, analysis, and discussion that you can't find anywhere else every single week. Welcome to Meta Business. Welcome to the Meta Business Podcast, episode two. I am Paul Dewalibi. I'm joined today by my friend and co-host, Jeff the Juice Cohen. Jeff, how's it going today? I am doing good. Uh, for those of you listening, this is actually take two of episode two. <laughs> no, you wouldn't sh- know that, sh- uh, but the first anything. take was ruined by my English bulldog, Bradley, who decided that he really needed a walk right in the middle of the taping. So that happened. We had to stop taping, and, and now here we are two hours later. So. <laughs> the, the 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 viewers now won't know on the seven minutes of just absolute fire that they missed out on uh thanks, a good to, role thanks to bradley the bulldog and then there was it sounded like a wounded goat in the background uh which paul paul is a professional he played through i lost my cool and and uh it was like a we'll we'll do it live kind of moment you know the old bill o'reilly so here we are now here I we are now better um just as a reminder guys this is episode two of the meta business podcast um if you're fans of the business of esports if you're here because of that welcome uh if you're here just because you saw metaverse and business together and thought it was interesting also welcome uh, what we do here is we're covering all the big stories coming out of the the, the metaverse sort of industry now world and uh, looking at all of it from a business and C-suite perspective. So if you're a fan of the Business of Esports podcast, hopefully you're going to love this. It's, it's a lot of what we do there, but focused really very much on metaverse themes and topics from a business perspective. Jeff, why don't we jump into, uh, you know, we did, we had a bunch of stories that we didn't get to cover from week one from episode one. Uh, and I know we want to touch on a couple of them uh, today, as well as some news stories from this past week. So let's get let's get started here. And let's start with a story that actually was a bit of a holdover from late last week. And this is Phil Spencer in the news. Phil Spencer, who's the head of Xbox at Microsoft. He's a very important person at Microsoft, basically in charge of everything gaming. And the headline here, I think, is real clickbait. It's, it's, it's incredibly kind of uh, inflammatory in some ways. And the headline is, Xbox head Phil Spencer, NFTs in gaming feel very exploitive right now. And let me just read quickly the whole, the whole sort of interview question and answer that happened. So this is Phil Spencer speaking. It was an interview with Axios. And he says... What I'd say today on NFT All Up is I think there's a lot of speculation and experimentation that's happening and that some of the creative that I see today feels more exploitive than about entertainment. I don't think it necessitates that every NFT game is exploitive. I just think we're kind of in that journey of people figuring it out. And I can understand that early on you see a lot of things that probably are not things you want to have in your store. I think anything that we looked at in our storefront that we said is exploitive would be something that we would, you know, take action on. We don't want that kind of content. So Phil Spencer here, Jeff, taking kind of a pretty strong viewpoint on NFTs and games or NFT games, based games, and and has sort of come out very clearly in my mind saying, we don't want to have anything to do with it right now. Um, what's your take on this? Is he 
you know, well, it's is he trying to just like, create conversation here? What, what do you think he's trying to accomplish with this? I think, you know, we kind of have the battle lines drawn a little bit now where, you know, on one side you have Steam and Valve, which I would say came out even stronger than this and basically banned all NFT games on their platform completely. Uh, I don't see Phil Spencer doing that here. I see him kind of putting up a red flag and saying, hey, there are some things we need to be aware of and there are some parts of these games and some titles within this new genre, if you want to call it that, that may be problematic. And so he's sort of like putting the caution flag up. And then you have Tim, you know, our favorite Tim Sweeney, who seemed to kind of, even though he has actually, to be fair, made similar comments to what Phil Spencer just said. I think he called, you know, these games said there were many scams in the NFT and kind of crypto industry right now. Um, but he seemed to welcome those type of games with open arms um, after Valve uh, made their announcement, which you know, you could maybe a cynic would say that he was sort of saw an opening and, and, and took it a little bit, but you sort of do have now this spectrum um, of these, of these different game stores and platforms kind of with what their, um, you know, opinions are around blockchain gaming and, uh, and NFTs to kind of get to the point of what Phil Spencer said, I, you know, for me, I think exploitative is a bit of the wrong word. It's kind of a, a little strong to me because, in my mind, when I hear the word exploitative, that kind of gives me the impression that people don't know what they're getting into. Like I think of, you know, a grandmother who gets a call from, you know, the IRS quote unquote, and then gives their, their sort of credit card and, and social security number because they were getting scammed. When I think of NFT games and the, kind of the, the dirty side of it right now, it's a little bit more of like a speculative driven mania rather than exploitative scam. I think a lot of people come into these things with eyes wide open, knowing that, you know, it's a little bit of uh, a tulip mania to some extent where people are buying in just to, to get into the speculation. But I don't necessarily see that as exploitative, just to kind of, I think, throw that out there. That's I do fair. Think, and, yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. You, you no, I'm sure there are some out. small percentage that would qualify as scams or exploitative, right? Like that would meet that in the same way, like yeah. there are mobile games that are scams or yeah. exploitative, right? Like it exists, but I, I, I see your point that it's too broad of a brush. I think the bigger question, and, and I think this is part of the reason why Valve maybe has some issues with it, is just the, the red flag around, around gambling. You know, when you take some of these game mechanics and you have like a gotcha mechanic or what really is kind of like a random number generator, um, loot box and then you have those items and you're allowed to cash them out it seems to me that 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 could definitely be construed as gambling like i know one of the defenses in the past for why people say loot boxes are not gambling is because they always you know the companies always defend themselves by saying well you can't cash them out so there there's not really anything of value that you can cash out but in this case if you are able to cash these things out which clearly that is one of the, the premises of blockchain gaming and pay to earn in my mind, that very quickly could become um, regulated under gambling. So I think there are reasons to kind of people to take a step back and see how this is all going to play out as a platform holder. Yeah, to me, and your your camp analogy was a good one, right? I do see two camps forming here. The You have not just Epic, but I would argue like EA, Ubisoft on one side who have come out and said, this is the future. We're putting all our efforts here. We're going to be blockchain gaming companies. We're going to make a bunch of these games, right? Like fundamentally they've taken a stance 
that's very positive. No mention of exploitation, no mention of turning anything away. No, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and then you have here the head of gaming essentially at Microsoft pouring a bunch of cold water on that, right? Being in a very different camp saying, hold on a second, we're not putting any of this on our store yet, right? Like, um, does, you know, Microsoft's stance here potentially puts the brake breaks on this industry wide, right? Because they do carry a lot of weight. They do have a lot of influence. If you can't play these games on an Xbox, you know, that takes away a, a good size, a good chunk of the market. Um, the question is who's sort of going to be on the right side of history is the sort of the interesting question here, right? Like, is it yeah. Bill Spencer and, and Microsoft and Steam or is it Ubisoft and EA and, you know, Epic? It is interesting, and it's it kind of gets to the heart of one of the biggest, I would say, problems with blockchain gaming right now in terms of uh, reasons why adoption maybe hasn't been as hasn't picked up as much. And I think that is the friction of the user experience. I mean, the the onboarding process. Like, if you look at a game like Axie Infinity, to to get into the game, it, it is a challenging process. You have to download a wallet. You have to upload money into the wallet. You have to then actually go purchase, I believe, three axes, which the price clearly moves on those, but it can be several hundred dollars. So when you look at that versus downloading a free-to-play game in the App Store, there is a lot more barrier to entry, literally for players getting into your game, which is obviously what you do not want as a studio or a publisher of a game. You want the transition into your game to be as seamless as possible. So I do think the fact that some of these app stores are not, and, and actually most of these blockchain games, you have to sideload or, or play on like a browser. So the fact that you can't kind of go into the Apple app store or Microsoft store and download these games and play them is actually a major hurdle. So I do think that is a problem. However, it opens up an opportunity potentially for an, an aggregator of blockchain games to be sort of like the app store of blockchain games. And I think there are a number of companies that are kind of approaching that, Tam. Um, I, I, I agree, you know, it, it's, I personally think when someone as big as Microsoft though, takes a wait and see approach, this, this will have a bit of a calming effect, right? Like I think, I think Phil Spencer knew that by coming out and saying something like this, there would be an industry-wide reaction or consequence or effect, like I don't think his words are just going to go out into the void, and no one, no one sort of changes what what they're deciding they're going to do. I think that's probably fair, but I feel like a lot of the bull case and a lot of you know, I think the hype in the industry would probably the, the their mindset would be well, of course the the dinosaur who controls the old school console market, like yeah, like obviously they're going to say that this is bad, and it's classic innovators dilemma problem. Where I, I think some of some people might take that to be sort of like clearly he's going to say that and almost like I'm more bullish because he's saying that it proves how far ahead we are and how right we are that he's gatekeeping us and saying hey this is bad. I'm not saying that's my opinion. I'm just saying like the people who are probably forward leaning into this industry might take that, have that opinion. That's fair. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, real estate. And the metaverse, because there's been a bunch of stories, and I'll I'll just I'll put some of them up here, but it's a few different stories. This one from SingularityHub.com. Uh, the headline is "Virtual Land in the Metaverse is Selling for Millions of Dollars," and they quote 
Uh, Tokens.com Corp., a Canadian investment firm that's focused on crypto assets, uh, announced that it closed the largest metaverse land acquisition in history through its subsidiary Metaverse Group. Uh, the land acquisition was in the form of 116 segments, each equivalent to 52.5 square feet, a total of about 6,000 square feet of land. Uh, and they paid $2.4 million. This is in Decentraland's Fashion Street District. And according to them, they're going to use the space to facilitate fashion shows and commerce within the exploding digital fashion industry. I want to put this story... Uh, by the way, the, the, this was a record for the most money spent on a plot of virtual land uh, until literally... So this was... This was uh, literally days apart. Another sale uh, in the sandbox sold for $4.3 million. So record after record being set literally just in the last week where this was a, a plot of land bought in the sandbox. Uh, it was bought from video game company Atari who owns who owned this plot of land. Uh, and uh, this... This, this one at least didn't say what they're going to do with it uh, other than what they sometimes do with it. It says the company sometimes decides to sit on vacant metaverse property and wait for it to appreciate. Other times it will pay an architect to design virtual homes or malls and then hire a game developer to build them. So no idea what's going to happen with this 4.3 million plot in the sandbox, but very clear strategy with the plot here in Decentraland. Now, I... Sorry for the long sort of intro here, but I want to put this against an article from the Wall Street Journal, which said, brands no longer see metaverse-like worlds as abstract gimmicks. Chipotle, Vans, and Verizon turned to Roblox, Fortnite in an effort to build brand recognition. So you have brands engaging in sort of these metaverse kind of metaverse-esque platforms. Um, what do you make, Jeff, of these land acquisitions, first of all, in general, but second of all, I, what I thought was most interesting to me, at least, was that the the two point four million one. There was a clear like plan what to do with it. It wasn't like buying an NFT, hoping like relying on greater fool theory here that someone yeah. else was going to pay a lot more for it. Like there seemed to be a clear vision around what they wanted to do with that. I, I'm curious if that sways your thinking, whether you liked it before, you didn't like it, and now you you know it's one or the other. There's a lot to unpack there. You have virtual fashion. I think we could talk about. You have the the land sales, which is super interesting, and then the brand. Let's start so with I guess the land for, sales. Yeah, I think the land the land sales we start with. You know, for me, the the numbers are just seem a bit out of whack. Um, and it's it's the concept of buying virtual land actually makes makes some sense to me. The problem that I have is is just that it seems to me that these platforms are selling this land like. It's a little bit of a, if you build it, they will come strategy. Like I don't, and I, this could be me being, you know, ignorant. I'm just not sure how many users they, these platforms have where you could justify saying, Hey, I'm going to spend 4.2 million for this plot of land that I'm going to build something on, because I just don't know if there are that many people in these universes interacting and kind of actually spending time there. Like I would be a, a lot more bullish if this was something, you know, a brand building within Roblox or, or something where I knew there were sort of users on the platform. Um, whereas I see some of these land sales and these other um, platforms like the Central Land and, and the other one where 
it feels to me like a little bit more of, of speculation. Um, even though the one, obviously the one clearly was because they literally said they might not do anything with it. They might just wait for the value to appreciate. That is like literally the definition sort of, of charitably an investment, but also, you know, speculation. If you're buying something with the only hope that the value is going to go up. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's my initial thought on the land. I just don't know the one, I don't know how many people are literally you know, populating these worlds, whether it's enough to have an economic impact where you're going to make your, your value back. The other, I, I'm just not sure how much scarcity there is where it's like, when, what happens when the next platform comes up and starts selling virtual land? Like, is, is there really enough scarcity? It, it, everything in, in, in digital goods, kind of the value comes from scarcity and then with real estate location. So location, I'm not sure on because I don't know if people are actually in these worlds. So to use that metaphor, are they buying in the right location? And then scarcity, well, I'm not sure that this is scarce because you could just have more land or someone could build a new platform that quote, sells different land. So I, I wouldn't be super bullish on, on, on this. So let's address those two points because I think it's an interesting way of breaking it down, right? Like the, the value in the land is partly dependent on location and what location really means in this context is how many eyeballs exist on this platform, right? Mm -hmm. How many people are using Decentraland versus Roblox versus Fortnite on a daily basis? Now, Decentraland's interesting. The, the, number, the last number I saw was from March of this year where they hit 10,000 daily active users, which is relatively small, right? Like that's not a... Compared to a right. Roblox or a Fortnite, that's a relatively small number. Now, I could, we can assume because they went from, you know, January to March, they went from 1,500 to 10,000. So we can assume probably pretty exciting growth. You know, let's say they're at 100,000. Even daily. if it's a million, I'm not sure, you know. Right, that's still what that does. order of magnitude smaller yeah. than a Fortnite or a Roblox. So it's a relatively small platform, um, but clearly they're making a bet that the audience there is of greater value. They're early adopters. They maybe have money to spend, right? They're, they're knowledgeable about the space. Like to me, a Decentraland is more niche than a Roblox or a Fortnite. And so you're mm -hmm. going to have a different set of eyeballs there. Um, and so I could, I sort of buy that strategy, right? Like how that pitch may go to, if you're trying to convince Gucci to do their, the, you know, their metaverse fashion show on De in Decentraland versus a Roblox. Um, like I buy that and I, I would, I might think I could make the argument that Decentraland's the better place for that than a Roblox. Um, but uh, this, it's the second point that I think is also interesting, which is that of scarcity. Uh, I know Decentraland, I can't remember the exact number. I was, I was actually looking for it. Uh, it's like 4,000 or something. I may have made that up, but. They are, they, limit they, the they are limited. There you go. It, it's 90,601 parcels of land. I was pretty close. Okay. And <laughs> so there, there's an artificial limit to create scarcity. To your point, 2.4 million for 6,000 square feet is like we're talking, you know, almost like New York real estate kind of prices. Yeah. Um, in a world where a big part of the problem is, to your point, it's not so much that Decentraland could go create more because they may they may keep their word and never make more than 90,000 parcels available, which 
unlike real world land, they could go back on that, right? And decide mm-hmm. they want to release 10,000 more parcels. Um, but it's you and I could start a virtual sort of metaverse real estate play tomorrow and offer 100,000 parcels of land. And all of a sudden, the Decentraland parcels are in some ways less scarce, right? Even though it's a different right. platform. Right. Um, and so the big question is, is the 2.4 million worth it here, right? That's, that's the business question I come back to. What's your view on that, right? If breaking it down from a scarcity and the location standpoint. From a pure speculation standpoint, I mean, it's, it's possible. Um, the question that I have is what are they going to build on the land? And then, you know, I think they talked a little bit about that. And then what tools are, do these platforms have, do these games have to allow people to build on the land, right? Can they build anything? Can they build a game experience within the game? And then it becomes a question of, again, to use the real estate analogy, like a big, very important part of real estate value is what's around you. Do you have a school next to you? Do you have a a sewer pit next to you? Or do you have a nice family in a beautiful house, right? Like what what happens if- I don't know if that's as much of a consideration though. Because travel in virtual world is instant, <laughs> no, right? Like, no, but the reason the reason why I say that is what happens if the next, you know, you're assuming that everyone else in De- the rest of the Decentraland land plots are going to build interesting experiences where someone wants to come spend time. I think of about true. it as a you a have mall, to assume that right? the user base becomes will a grow. virtual mall, right? Yeah, and the only way the user base grows is if other people buy land and create interesting experiences that yep. are different than yours slash valuable to people. Right. So I, I think you're taking a pretty big risk that other people are going to kind of buy in and build things. Can I make the short term argument here, though, that I think this is a, a huge bargain? And that is we're in an in a period of the industry where everyone's experimenting. Right. And especially the brands like we saw that other story that I brought up. Right. They, they talked about Chipotle, Vans, Verizon, like all these brands are experimenting, building experiences inside of Roblox, Fortnite, Decentraland, and others, right? Um, I could see a world where, you know, if they build something cool in Decentraland from a fashion standpoint, them being able to get, you know, marketing dollars from Gucci and Louis Vuitton and Chanel and whoever else, right? A a ton of luxury brands who all want to have maybe a retail presence in a virtual world, who want to have a experience, experiential presence, who want to have do their fashion shows there. Like it's not hard to sort of back out and say, how many, how many of those kinds of luxury brands does this company need to sign up to get to pay it to have paid off sort of their $2.4 million purchase? I think the ROI here is very high and very fast. Right. To me, they probably recoup these costs in a year or two. But, but here's a question, I, and I, so I see, I see. And what then you're they saying. own the land free, and then they own saying. the land. Right, it's paid for. <laughs> I see what you're saying, but as a brand, why would you do that versus build your own experience? Unless, unless that they are going to bring more people in, because it's like it's, it would be very cheap for someone to go build a Roblox experience of Chipotle or Nike, which we've we've seen both those do. Yeah, why, but they why both would I outsource it, rent? Right? I would pay rent. Effectively, you don't have to pay rent if you don't want to. If I do it with, you know, the Decentraland folks, I have to then pay rent. Why would well, I do that? If you do, do it that? with 
Roblox, you have to pay rent too, right? You sort of, if you want it to be sort of featured in Roblox or like you could just put up an experience that you build or hire some programmers to build. I think here, what they're betting on is the eyeballs that exist on Decentraland today. They're betting on this idea that they're first to market with this sort of fashion district concept, right? There's a lot of like sexy kind of uh, spin around this that I think makes it appealing to those luxury brands. And it's not, hey, Roblox, you know, is the average age really like 14? Like the, they, they sort of don't have that stigma, as even though it's untrue for Roblox. They don't have that stigma. Uh, and this feels more premium. Uh, so I, I see it as just this deal in isolation, I think is a home run. It may sound like a big, uh, like a big price tag, but I actually think the ROI on this is going to be very high. So you think, so in your view, this, this deal makes money, not, not like, Hey, they sell it for 8 million at some point. Cause someone else decides has this they probably season, will, but, but, but they also make money before that X that you think that they will be like generating significant, you know, I think so. Yeah. Revenues and cash flow. Yeah, I do. Interesting. Now, I don't know if they do for the next 10 years, but I definitely think today, because I also, I think part of it is this, the the landscape gets more crowded as more and more people sort of integrate themselves into these metaverses. Um, and so you just get more players, more platforms, et cetera. But the, the, if the question is short term, is this is this a success and will it generate revenue and be sort of net positive to the buyer? I think definitely yes. So I think if there's one thing, it seems to me what you're saying is like there's a novel, there's a there's the benefit of novelty here, and I think this is something. Correct, Call it like first mover, like yeah, novelty so kind mover, of has a negative novelty kind of thing. The the question I have, and this kind of ties into our next few stories or the one you already prefaced about brands. It just strikes me, and we we've always been very positive about brands, you know, creating Roblox experiences and stuff like that. And I I do think right now, because of the first mover, because of the novelty, it is a good strategy. But I just wonder how far it seems like so far the metaverse is currently just a digital shopping mall. And it's like to me, I I sort of like see this and I'm like somewhat disappointed where I'm like, is this really kind of the best we can do so far? Where Essentially, we're all getting excited about going to a digital shopping mall, which is effectively like slightly better than just going on Amazon, like e-commerce, like effectively you're just shopping, but in a digital world, like I, I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm very on board with, I love that brands are getting into the metaverse, but it scares me a little bit that like, it seems like that we're just creating like, what you just described is literally just a digital store. It's like, I'm a landowner and I'm going to lease my store to a retailer who's going to sell goods. Like that is not sure, that exciting to me I mean, as a metaverse. This is why we call it an alternate universe, essentially, right? It, it's not a reinvention of the wheel. It's, it's a digitized version of what we already do. Um, I, I just want to sort of, before we, we, we get into the brand side here, I, I just want to sort of wrap up this idea of, of the virtual, these virtual land stories from this week. To me, there was a clear distinction between these two, right? The 2.4 million one in Decentraland had like a clear strategy and purpose around it. I think where I'm I'm more skeptical and maybe a little more negative is the $4.3 million purchase in the sandbox with no strategy, right? Where the I think the the underlying message there is we're hoping someone's gonna pay us eight million for it, you know, two years from now. 
mm-hmm. and that 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 becomes sort of speculation, right? That that's this is this is like betting on nothing that's tangible or concrete in any way. I, I don't know. Do you do you make that difference between the two? Oh, hundred percent. I think it, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Where at least one is saying, I, I don't know that that strategy is going to work. You seem pretty bullish on it. I I would say I'm a little bit less bullish on it, but I do agree that at least they have come in with a plan that doesn't. And to be fair, the other one probably does too. It just didn't mention it in the article. Um, but there is definitely that distinction where one seems to be speculating, whereas the other is building and investing. Well, let's, let's bring up this story, which is again, in the same vein. And it's from CNBC. Nike teams up with Roblox to create a virtual world called Nike land. And, and again, I'm, I'm sort of stre- This is a perfect sort of continuation from the previous conversation do you like this better than buying land in Decentraland and trying to lure brands to this virtual fashion district? Like, would you rather see brands be activating directly in Roblox or Fortnite? And, and here, just some of the bullet points, it says Nike's teaming up uh, to create a virtual world called Nike Land in Roblox. Users will be able to dress up their advert- avatars in Nike branded sneakers and apparel. It'll be free for now, but could be a place to try out new products and gauge consumers' interests. Yeah, so I, I'm a lot more bullish on this, and I think you know, kudos to Nike for for taking a step to do this within Roblox. I'm more bullish on this because it's you know, it's not the if you build it, they will come strategy. It's the people are already there, and we're sort of giving them what they want—a new experience within a platform where they already are. Um, I will be, and maybe you can already do this, but I will be a lot more bullish when you can go into this world, buy a digital pair of Nikes, and then run out into a new Roblox experience and have your digital avatar wearing those shoes. I'm not sure in the article whether it said whether that's the case or not. I know they said you could put on kind of the digital shoes, but I think that I would be a lot more excited about, um, you know, than, than just having people in there playing around. For Nike, that that for you know the second piece that is is clearly good branding, just having brand awareness. But I think as as we move forward in the metaverse and kind of big themes that I think I get excited about and we should all get excited about, you know, is is sort of that direct to avatar kind of consumption where it's like, hey, you're selling a digital good to someone's avatar and you're not tying it to anything in the physical world. Like to me, Nike is trying to tie this to sales in the physical world where it's okay, a kid goes into this Roblox experience, sees Nike, gets excited about something in Nike, and then they tell their mom next time they're at the mall, oh, there's the Nike store, let's go go buy something there. That's that's all well and good. I think that will actually, that strategy will work for Nike. What I think would push the, you know, the metaverse forward is the, the first thing I mentioned, which would sort of be someone comes in, they sees a, see a really cool pair of digital shoes and say, I want to buy that pair of digital shoes so I can wear them in this Roblox, in the metaverse, not so I can go buy them in the real world. And then what would be really interesting, and I'm, you know, this is kind of where all this is heading, is that you are buying those and then it's an asset that you own because it's an NFT and it's on the blockchain and then you can sell it. That's clearly where I think all this is heading. I don't know how quickly Nike wants to get it there or even if Roblox has interest in having NFTs within their platform. But I think it's it's very clear that that's that's where this this game is heading. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on the vision 100. percent I'll take it one step further and add, you know, at some point we need the the 
metaverse equivalent of like standardized electronic health records, right? Where your avatar is stored in some standardized way that's portable between metaverses, between platforms, et cetera, right? Like, again, mm-hmm. I've talked about, I talked this about this in episode one, like standards and sort of interoperability from a tech perspective are critical to make some of these visions and business models work. I think from the Nike story, what I get is sort of backs up the point I made on why I like the Decentraland land purchase is brands are just in an experimentation phase, right? This said very specifically, they they're, they want to gauge consumer interests on new products. Like they, they see this as like a, a virtual uh, focus group, right? Mm-hmm. Like a way to do cheaper focus groups maybe, or right. They're thinking in very conventional terms, not seeing maybe all of the options that pure virtual, pure digital allows them. And, and I, w- I would say this is a theme we see in the gaming and esports world, right? Like people love to be tethered by uh, traditional sports kind of, uh, uh, you know, the way traditional sports usually does things when in reality esports being a purely digital product doesn't need to be tethered in that way. You know, I, I think I see a lot of brands entering the metaverse. That's how all these articles start, right? Like Nike enters the metaverse um, by just adopting sort of things they're doing in the real world and transporting it to the virtual world and doing it same, same, you know, one-to-one. Um, and that's okay, right? I, to me, there's nothing wrong with that being step one. Um, I just don't agree with you necessarily that this is better than the Decentraland one, right? Like from a business perspective, it doesn't really matter to me. Like if you're, if, if you believe your audience as a brand is in Roblox, then go and activate on Roblox directly. If you believe that the central lands where your audience is like go activate there through, you know, someone who maybe purchased land and can, can build it for you. Or uh, at the end of the day, I think it's go where your consumer is as a brand and not, don't get too caught up into this metaverse, that metaverse, direct, not direct, whatever the, you know, whatever the case may be. I, I think you brought up a good, a good point there um, that kind of got me thinking just how early we are in this space and brands really are sort of, it's almost like the analogy, they're in the dark room and they're kind of fumbling around looking for the light switch. Um, you know, it's similar to when, when sort of social media started. I think a lot of brands you saw, they put up a Facebook page and it, it just had some information about them and had their web page whatnot. Um, and you think about what that has gone from that to what, uh, you know, brands do on social media now. And it, it really, it really is just night and day. You're going to see that exact same transformation here within the metaverse. And right now I'm sure most of this is all outsourced to agencies, stuff like that. Over time, I, you know, you're going to see every single company that has a direct to consumer and a marketing business. They're going to have to hire game developers. They're going to have to hire people who understand NFTs, blockchain, the metaverse. And you are starting to see that a little bit. I believe I saw somewhere Nike has like a chief metaverse officer or some director of metaverse, which kudos. I've seen a lot of those positions Uh, on LinkedIn. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's some somewhat mind blowing, but at the same time, it also, if you believe in this future, you're going to need that person. Same way, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it probably would have been ridiculous if someone said, Oh, well, you're the, VP of social media at some, at a company or well, e-commerce every, before that. Yeah. Like I, I've seen every all those. single company has a, someone who runs their social media. It would be ridiculous if you didn't, it'll be yep. the same thing with the metaverse. Um, 
let's fi- let's finish Jeff on this last story here, which uh, it's it's always interesting to cover these kinds of things because in some ways they anchor a lot of the early stage piece of the industry, right? That they they help foster in what we call the metaverse industry from the ground up, and I think that they're really important stories to cover. And, and this one's uh, the headline here from VentureBeat. Play Ventures launches Play Future Fund with $75 million in commitments. Uh, so Play Ventures revealed that they're, they have a new fund for blockchain gaming investments. The fund has made three commitments already. It's focused on the intersection of Web3, aka Metaverse, and gaming. They're fully subscribed with $75 million. Uh, and they say, we believe the future of Metaverse trust lives on blockchains, whether it's payments, assets, identity, or human coordination, the companies in, we invest in will have crypto-native solutions. Um, it's worth mentioning that the fund uh, earlier this year raised $135 million as part of a second fund to invest in game startups. And they've invested in a dozen dozens of game companies since 2018. So Play Ventures, this is a fund that has invested in game developers and now has raised an entirely new fund, an entirely separate vehicle, uh, focused on metaverse and uh, and gaming and the intersection of those two things. What is your general thought on VC funds, venture capital funds that are focused strictly on this area? Uh, I mean, I don't. I think it is makes this the right size. The is it yeah. too soon? Is it? Is it perfect timing? Is it? I'm almost to be honest. I'm surprised it's not bigger just because of how massive and I, I know these funds take a while you know they didn't spin this up three weeks ago when facebook changed its name or whenever that was um so these, these things take time but i i think we're going to see significantly even larger funds and we have seen several bigger ones you know in the past couple months because it's just such a massive opportunity and the white space is there and i think for lps you get the opportunity to invest kind of in pure plays in this space I, I do think, you know, this, we're going to see a lot, we're going to be covering a ton more of these stories, I would imagine. No question. And, and, and I, I, I would guess we see a dozen funds like this in the next, you know, between now and sort of the end of first quarter of next year, like the, the, this yeah. kind of sort of pace, um, size of the fund, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, how much, how much of the how many of the opportunities that exist out there are really good and investable kind of venture scale businesses? That's always a question mark for me when you're early in a in an industry, right? Which we are. It's, you know, metaverse is a in my mind a 10, 20 year play. The outcome is guaranteed, but you're still talking about 10, 20 years where, you know, the industry will mature and grow. Um is it well suited for ventures, you know, type of investing? The one, the one thing I would say that is, that is interesting when you have a lot of these blockchain games, just the nature of the way the game works in terms of the having tokens. A lot of times the, you you see very quickly, these tokens start to have value. And because of the money that the the, the tokens that the company has in treasury, these companies can already have a quite a sizable war chest. That doesn't mean they can necessarily turn that into cash or use it for operating expenses. But very quickly, if you start to have a token that goes kind of it gets some traction, your, your company can selectively start to put those some of those into the ecosystem and really raise cash very effectively, essentially from their customers. So, you know, it's not that clear like a lot, that a lot of these crypto blockchain games 
are going to need to raise the amount of funds that maybe a um, mobile gaming company would have had to, you know, because of UA costs and development costs. I think it's a little bit more of a capital efficient, um, just that's a fair point. If you think about it that way. Yeah. I think for me, it's a bit of a balance in my head where I'm, I'm sort of afraid for them just from a stage of the industry standpoint, right? VCs rely on billion dollar exits to return their funds and, and, you know, achieve a significant kind of rate of return for their investors. Um, but I'm, I balance that with where I, I, I kind of like this story because they have years of investing in game developers under their belt. And I think that helps, right? Like fundamentally, we can call it blockchain-based games. We can call them NFT games. We can call them, fundamentally, a lot of these investments are still games, right? There are some infrastructure plays and things like that. That's fine. But I think the game investing experience, investing in real actual games, game developers, is a is an advantage here, and probably why they were able, you know, to raise a fund earlier in the year, and now another mm-hmm. fund, uh, sort of piggybacking off of that. Um, and so this one, I think, is an interesting one to watch. I'm 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 a, I'm a bit a little bit sort of more optimistic here than some of the others I've seen. I think, and uh, you know, I, I I would be curious to see how the exit picture evolves over the next two or three years. That that to me is the crux of the success of these funds. Absolutely. And I think you hit on a theme that I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to a lot. Um, you know, which, which is really in order for these blockchain games to really take off and gain scale and, and massive user bases, the games fundamentally have to be entertainment experiences and be fun. And I think what we've seen early on in the space, and maybe just because of the complexity of blockchain and kind of the, the people that it brings in as early adopters, You've seen a lot of the early blockchain gaming companies and blockchain gaming games really be, I would say, more basic experiences. And this is some something that I think we saw with mobile gaming and free-to-play gaming very early in the beginning. So this will evolve. But I think the teams that you want to bet on, and conversely, the VCs that you would want to bet on as an LP, are the ones that have experience understanding how to build great, fun, engaging games. Because I think at the core of it, if your game is not fun and engaging, eventually all play to earn becomes is a job and that will lead to a massive upswing and then a massive downswing because you're fundamentally you are you are fundamentally um you need people more people to be coming into the game in order for your tokens to continue to increase value just if you think about it, it it stands to reason not everyone can come in and make money right that is the definition of a ponzi scheme there needs to ultimately be some people that are paying coming to the game and just paying money because it's entertaining. Otherwise, in order for you to make money, someone else has to come in and spend more money. So I, I think that is something we'll come back to as a theme, a ton about play to earn and blockchain gaming, but I, it's, it's a good point in this context to bring up. I love ending on that thought, Jeff, um, for our listeners, our viewers. Uh, first of all, thank you guys. If you've tuned into the first couple of episodes here, we'd love your feedback. If you're loving the format, loving the content, let us know if you if you have suggestions, we're totally open to it. Make sure to subscribe, like on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, wherever. Spread the word. Send it to your friends. Uh, tell everyone you know who's in- interested in the metaverse and what's going on here. Even if they are not that knowledgeable, this is a great way, I think, for people to get embedded in the space and learn a lot. Jeff, thank you as always. Uh, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks for watching this episode of Meta Business. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to leave a review if you love the content. This is a Meta TV series, the world's first and only media platform focused on Metaverse content and themes. So make sure to follow all of the other Meta TV social channels for more shows just like this.